Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 219. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Welcome to the MCAT podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. As always, I'm joined by a member of the Blueprint MCAT team. And this week, we get to meet someone new. We're going to say hello to Alex, who you will hear has an amazing British accent. And we're going to learn all about his journey to medical school and how he sees the MCAT journey for you and for him. I hope you learn a ton about the MCAT through Alex's eyes. We're going to jump in and say hello to Alex right now. Alex, welcome to the MCAT podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing great. How are you? I am wonderful. So right off the bat, the first thing people are going to hear is like, wait a minute, that is not an American accent. Only Americans take the MCAT, right? How dare you? I am <laughs> born and raised in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> uh, what's going on? Where's where's that fun accent from? Yeah, so uh, I am English. My parents are English. Uh, I immigrated to the U.S. Uh, from the U.K. when I was uh, ooh, eight or nine years old. And uh, yeah, so I went to middle school in the U.S. in in New Jersey. I usually I usually wait until kind of the second or third meeting to tell people that. <laughs> Sorry, people from New Jersey. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I went to um, I went I did my undergraduate and graduate degree in the U.K. But I kind of decided fairly early on in college that actually, you know, I wanted to be a doctor in the U.S. Yeah. So it kind of hence started my MCAT journey, which was, I think, you know, unconventional, but you know, a lot of fun. And I think is, you know, kind of in line with that has equipped me really well to teach all of this, these concepts to people because, you know, I had to teach them all to myself. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that because it's it's not often that I get to talk to someone who is an MCAT expert who mm-hmm. went to college abroad, who lived in another country, from another country. And, and obviously you spent some time here as well. 
the the mm-hmm. educational system in the UK in terms of of undergraduate graduate work how does that prepare a student for the MCAT or does it not and you have to go and do all of your own work outside of that yeah so i think if the the best way to put it is if the american education system is you know like a and kind of like a vast and shallow sea, uh, you can imagine. You can you can imagine the British educational system as being, you know, like an ocean trench, where uh, it's incredibly. So you know, obviously, we don't have majors in the UK. So you decl- you kind of go into a degree program, which I guess is the closest equivalent to a major. So uh, in terms of how it prepares you for the MCAT, uh, I think that was that was kind of best summed up by my. Uh, initial diagnostic test when I first started studying for the MCAT, whereas I, I got like a, you know, like a 121 on chem phys, like whatever, a 124, 125 on cars, a 132 on bio, biochem, <laughs> and then like a 121 on psych uh, Yeah. And that was a very natural reflection of the fact that I had been doing all of this, you know, like experimental design in bio, biochem, you know, quite intensely for several years, but my education had basically never touched any other, any other aspect, you know, no physics, no chem, no orgo, no psych, no soch. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was incredibly narrow and targeted, but kind of lacked the breadth that the MCAT really requires. Yeah. So your training in undergrad would potentially be very similar to a non-traditional student here in the States who majored in finance and is like, I don't understand any of these core sciences. I, this is this is not something that I understand or learned in school. And so uh, the, even though you're, you're from a completely different educational system, it's very similar to that here in the States. And so we have lots of non-treads who listen to the podcast. How did you take those first steps into going, well, I didn't learn this in, in university, right? That you, you call it uni- university, uh, but I need to learn it, period. Where, where did you start with that journey to understanding the knowledge? Yeah, so, it was, I mean, it was quite the journey because I think as ever, somewhat, if, you know, if you come from an international background, and I'm sure exactly the same thing happens for, you know, oh, I've you know, I majored in finance and then I've worked for an investment bank for three years. Um, there's always this step kind of almost before you address any of the content, which is like what the MCAT even is. Yeah. And actually it was your podcast that really helped me with that, which is not just these are the concepts you need to learn, but there's always that moment where it's like, and the MCAT isn't like a normal test. Like whatever is in your mind when you think of a test, the MCAT is like an order of magnitude more work and is harder than that yeah yeah so you've come full circle you have to appreciate the scale before you start digging into the material (laughs) itself yes so you you've come full circle from podcast listener to now being a co-host on the mcat podcast oh exactly you know it's this has a has a has a particular poetry to it that i like very much (laughs) i love it so the the first steps, obviously, listening to the podcast is great, but that doesn't teach you the core foundational sciences that you need. For someone who is in the UK, how do you take postback classes to understand that? Or did you come to the States and be like, okay, now I need to do this? So I actually, um, I 
taught myself almost all of the material. I did take post-bac classes, but it was, it was later. Hmm. Um, so I had taken some AP classes in high school, which had been really helpful. I took AP chemistry, which, you know, provided, if not the, um, the, like the en- enough depth of content for the MCAT, certainly like some background of like, what is molarity? What is a chemical equation? Yeah. And then, yeah. And then I, I just, it just took me a very long time. You know, I got, I ended up, I got review books from te- you know, from test prep companies. I would review the concepts by by myself and you know i think it's very similar to you know perhaps someone who's trying to take the mcat before they've taken you know before they've taken orgo or before they've taken you know chemistry where just loading that much information into your brain before you even address any of the kind of mcat specific strategy just takes a long time wow and Um, so probably not a three-month study plan no, it certainly was not. Um, I reckon it took an entire summer, which I thought would be fine. I'm, I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I'm very good at, uh, I, I'm someone who learns very well at just kind of sitting by myself and reading. <laughs> like I'm, I'm someone who's very suited to like self-learning. So that really helped. But yeah, so I reckon I, I devoted an entire summer to it, realized, you know, probably two thirds into the, into the prep process that it wasn't going to be enough. That, you know, I was still too weak on those foundational concepts. I didn't know enough psych, so, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know enough physics yet. Um, And then I ended up taking all of the kind of subsequent winter break as well, which in the UK is quite long. It's about six weeks to basically throw my entire life into the MCAT. Uh, Because at that point, you know, I'd taken enough practice tests. I felt like I had a good handle on the, um, on the, test taking strategy components of the MCAT and just had to, had to just devote myself to like, okay, you need to know theories of personality. Like it's just, they're nuggets of information. They have to go into your brain. Like this is what you're doing for the next six weeks. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those strategies. So obviously you were smart enough to understand the material, to teach it to yourself and and there are students out there who understand the material, have taught it to themselves, or who have taken classes and and really understand the material. They got great grades in school, but then it comes to the MCAT, and they don't have the strategies to do well on the MCAT. What are the biggest strategies you think students are missing when it comes to the MCAT? Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because I think this particular concept often gets so tied up in people's kind of internal conceptions of their intelligence. Or actually, I feel like it's actually a it's actually really a very different skill. You know, I, I often say to students who come to me and they're like, you know, I got great grades. I got an A in biology, or you know, particularly if they're a couple of years out of college, they're like, I have a biology degree. Like, why am I, you know, why am I not breaking the fiftieth percentile of bio biochem? And it's, yeah, it's because it's like, cause it's the MCAT relies on a different set of skills um, that, you know, I think are related to, but ultimately separate from intelligence. You know, p- many people, I think, approach their undergrad learning experience kind of holding concepts in their brain and then kind of, for lack of a better word, regurgitating it on the exams. Yeah. You know, they have the, the mental equivalent of a stack of index cards that all have information on them. And ultimately, the MCAT is a content test, but it's not enormously interested in your ability to just kind of quote concepts. Yep. 
you know, I remember on my on my MCAT exam, uh, or I believe it's one of the flanks, one of the questions is, um, one of the questions I saw was, uh, in a world where the uh, quantum number for spin could hold three instead of two discrete values, how many elements would, would the second row of the periodic table be able to hold? And I loved that question, but it gets to the absolute core of that concept, which is if you just have the little, you know, the little pyramid memorized, like, ah, like what's the electron configuration rules, you won't be able to answer that question. You have to understand the underlying concepts that those numbers refer to and how they would change if you manipulated them. That's a very different skill, but it's still one that you can improve with practice. Yeah, it's so important. I I think... Too many students try to just brute strength their way through the MCAT and and cram as much information in their head as possible, and then they go, "Okay, I got it all." Right, which is what you do for your final exams in college, but you can't do on the MCAT. Yeah. This is not the yeah. same. And then they go, "What happened?" So yeah. uh, obviously, you did well in the MCAT. You are now a Blueprint MCAT Live Online instructor. And, and for someone who self-taught a lot of the material, that's amazing. And, and you're interacting with students now all the time who are struggling with the MCAT or, or maybe not struggling, but learning how to take the MCAT. For someone just starting out on this journey, what is the kind of first steps in, in terms of recommendations that you have to say, okay, let's, let's dip your toes in this MCAT world? Yeah, yeah, always. I, get, I always recommend that people kind of, you know, take a diagnostic test. You know, it doesn't matter like what your approximate level, it doesn't matter where you think you are. It doesn't matter. Like in a sense, every full length or every diagnostic that you take is taking a snapshot of your like instantaneous MCAT ability at this point in time. You know, and that's why I always feel like they're taking a diagnostic test feels like, you know, dipping that pH stick into the liquid and seeing what it shows you. So I'm really mixing the metaphors here. But, um, you know, because, but it's, it's useful because, an MK, you know, a taking a diagnostic test isn't just a measure of your, like, how well do you, like, know the underlying content? It also leans on your strategy. So, um, yeah, I, or, and, you know, particularly with, like, the analytics that, you know, that Blueprint provides, they, they, it's so helpful because you can just instantly say to someone, like, oh, you know, you're much stronger in bio biochem than you are in physics. Or what you see with a lot of non-traditional applicants is they're very strong in cars because they've spent all day reading, yeah. but they have like, but, but they lack, you know, but they lack background in the sciences. And that's just so incredibly actionable for how do I structure my studying going forward? Yeah. Oh, in terms of length of prep that's always the the most common question i seem to get how how long do i need to study for the mcat obviously for someone Mm -hmm. like yourself who is trying to learn all the concepts and to learn mcat strategy potentially is different than someone just trying to learn the mcat where do you think students Mm -hmm. should start that process to figure out how long they should be studying yeah yeah absolutely um I think the really informative figures are the one published are the ones published by the people who make the test, the ones published by the AAMC, which is, you know, they report average amount of study time by every student who takes the test, which is not to say that every student should be studying the average. Of course, that's definitionally not true. 
but um, it, it, I think it always provides like a really incredible like calibration point, particularly for people who are just coming to the MCAT like as a concept for the, for the first time. And, you know, the AMC says that the average is about 290 hours for people who take the MCAT, you know, walking in on test day. But we, and we know, however, that, you know, the average MCAT score is about 500. And I'm sure as many people who are listening to this podcast know that actually, if you, you know, if you want to matriculate into medical school, the, you know, the average there is closer to 511, 512. And certainly the number, you, you know, the number that you should be shooting for in order to be kind of broadly competitive under those statistics, of course, everyone is different, is above 505, 506. Although, you know, there absolutely are exceptions. Yep. Um, so I always think that's a really valuable number to keep in mind is like, okay, if I'm a perfectly average student, I will probably need to put in more than this amount of time because I'm shooting for a better score than the average. Yeah. That's a good aside from that. After that, aside from that, you now we can start shifting this number in either direction. Do you have a really strong background in the sciences? It may be somewhat less you know, were you like me and had almost no background in, you know, two of the science sections? Like, maybe it'll be somewhat longer. Yeah. Interesting. So about 290 hours on average that the AAMC quotes, that's, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, And has been, I think, quite steadily rising over time. I'm obviously you couldn't draw any causal relationships, but the yeah. you know the average MCAT scores uh, for matriculated medical students has also been rising over time. Yeah, as yeah. I'm sure you know, information circulates on what it really takes. Yeah, I blame the podcast for that. Everyone's listening to the podcast, going, "Oh, the MCAT's really important. I need to study more." Um, I, yeah. I'm directly causing. No, uh, it's the same thing that we see <laughs> in medical school as well. The the average step one score, as we're recording this, step one is still a scored exam, but it's it's moving pass fail. Mm -hmm. When I was in school, the average step one score, I think, was like a, a 216. And mm -hmm. uh, now it's about a 230, which is a huge increase uh, on, wow. on the test. And so it's it comes from students understanding the importance of it. Uh, information being readily available through blogs and podcasts and social media and students being exposed mm -hmm. to what it actually takes earlier. When I went to medical school, I didn't really understand the importance of a step one score and how that affected your ability to match into a future uh, specialty. And so I was kind of mm -hmm. ignorant to the whole process and uh, therefore didn't take it as serious. And now students are taking it ser more serious. And there's there are more resources available. There are lots of companies starting all the time around how to understand material better, how to learn the the content better. And we see that with the MCAT as well, with uh, both Blueprint's new live online course and, and their online course that came out last year, and and other companies popping up left and right again for MCAT material. And so it's it, it's getting serious out there. Oh, it's, yeah. And it's frustrating and, and stressful. What do you say to a student who's like, I, "Like, how do I keep up with this?" And I'm not taking the test for another two years. The average then is going to be a five fifteen, and this is going to be ridiculous. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so, I mean, cause it is, it's so stressful. I think particularly for students who, you know, they come to this and they're like, I've wanted it, but you know, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was six years old, you know, like, and, you know, so really like for, for so many people, like this is their dream career, you know, there is no plan B. Um, and, you know, it, they sometimes, you know, they get to the MCAT and it's like, oh my God, it's this inscalable wall that, you know, but, you know, that to them just is like stand, standing between them and like <laughs> happiness in their profession. It's like, so a, it's, it's, it's like really a greased, stressful. It's a greased flagpole they have to climb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think particularly because then, you know, they see so many of their friends somehow scaling it. Yeah. And they think like, oh, why can't I do that? And, and that's really stressful and can really kind of weigh on your mental health. Yeah. Um, so I always, I always say to students, you know, in, the, in that situation, which is like, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a intractable cliche, but the, it really is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of MCAT prep boils down to little decisions that you make every day over the span of months, rather than, you know, a Herculean effort on any individual day. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, the, there's a, a really good book in the business world called, um, mm-hmm. oh man, I, I'm forgetting it. The compound effect, I think. Yeah. The mm-hmm. compound effect where, where that's, that's exactly what it is. It's like, just try to be 1% better every day. Uh, and unfortunately students don't understand how compounding interest works and uh maybe those finance uh uh pre-meds that we talked about earlier would know that but i mean student loans compound so they should (laughs) yeah um i i think too many students try to go from zero to 100 overnight and and they take their first full length or they take a diagnostic and they get a 495 and they go well, crap, like that's not good enough. I need a 520. That's what I'm shooting for. And they take their their first kind of real full length and they get a 500 and they go, well, this is terrible. I'm not getting any better, any closer. I'm like, wait, you went from a 495 to a 500. That's a huge increase. Baby steps, yeah. baby steps. You got to get there. Oh, it's so yeah, frustrating. Exactly. And, you know, I think people, you know, it's, it's just like you said, people overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in three months. Yeah. Thousand percent. Yeah. I, I love that kind of quote. There's That's a very popular quote. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to you being kind of this pseudo international student. So mm-hmm. spending time here in the States, being born and going to university in the UK and then wanting to come to medical school in the States. Do you have dual citizenship or are you a resident here? How does, how does that work? Yeah. So I have, um, I actually, I actually have four passports. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you're a spy. I have a That's what very, you're saying. I it is. It, well, I actually have looked and actually to apply to MI6, you have to renounce all of your non-British passports. I have, I have given it a non-trivial amount of consideration. Uh, and uh, yeah, so no, I was born in Cyprus and then okay. had lived in many, many countries growing up. Okay. And uh, yeah, but settled in the US, you know, from the age of about nine. 
and yeah, as, and actually people do ask me that. They're like, well, what, you know, why do you want to be a doctor here? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've spoken yourself to yourself about the, you know, the particular and I think reasonably unique challenges that face the American medical system. People say to me, like, why don't you just want to be a doctor in the UK? You know, the, their health system is in so many ways more equitable or more functional. Yep. You know, why not do it there? Um, and you know, I say to people, it's like, well, actually, you know, I've lived here since I was nine. You know, although it doesn't sound like it, like America is my home. It's where my family is, and it's where I really see myself being long term. And yeah. I think, you know, in a sense, although I think practicing as a physician in the U.S. does come with some discrete trade-offs, you know, ultimately, I think, particularly for international students who are considering, you know, medical school in the U.S., you know, particularly if you're doing an undergraduate degree here, that actually, you know, if the U.S. is the place where you see yourself long term, you know, actually, I think specializing as a physician here is really good for the country because it is, you know, I think it's only through the actions of people that are here that it will improve. Yeah. Interesting. So the, the fact that you did your undergraduate work in, uh, at an international school, a lot of students, especially students who are U S citizens who born and raised here and then go, I'm going to go have an adventure and, go to the UK, go to Australia, go somewhere else and do my undergrad work. They don't realize that that puts them at a disadvantage for applying to medical school because medical schools want coursework here in the US. And so I'm interested to know, because you said you did some post-bac work after kind of studying for the MCAT. Was that specifically for this kind of 90-hour requirement that a lot of schools have? It was. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, you know, I decided to go to university in the UK. I assumed that it would be fine for <laughs> medical school. That is a probably not a decision I would make again. Interesting. You know, I I, I should you know I should have listened to your podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it, it turned the the process of doing an international undergraduate degree, um, and then coming back to the US turned out to be vastly more work than I ever possibly imagined. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I had one exchange last year where there was a particular school that I was interested in, uh, and, uh, but they had a, at least one year of classes in the U S requirement, which on balance is the most, seems to be the most common. There are a few medical schools, which explicitly allow the UK, uh, in terms of coursework. Nice. Um, I believe, you know, uh, Stanford and Yale, I think are both in that category. Um, but uh, there was one medical school that I really wanted to apply to, which had this one year of study in the US. And I sent the dean of the school a personal email saying, <laughs> I, I, know th- I know that I'm non-standard, like, but you know, I have two degrees, one from, you know, and my master's degree was from the same school that he did his master's degree. <laughs> You know, he came to the UK to do his master's degree. Yeah. Uh, so I sent him this email. I was like, and I hope, anyway, uh, before going back to this medical school, and I said, you know, and I hope you weren't disadvantaged by the experience. Uh, <laughs> no, please, I prom, I prom, like, I promise, I know, you know, I promise, I took real classes. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it and it didn't work. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was, I ended up, and that this is why, you know, I've, I've put in so much work to do 
um, post back class classes in the US, and which is now actually as of this coming summer, I will have fulfilled all of them. Yeah, very interesting. It is funny now, though, you know, taking chemistry, uh, you know, like now because of COVID remotely and, uh, you know, whatever, like, you know, whatever. You're, you're, in group, you're in group classes and people say, wow, you're really good at chemistry. I was like, yeah, weird. <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah. It's not like I have years and years and years under my belt um, <laughs> and, and the MCAT work. So it, I, I want to ask you specifically because both your MCAT expertise and now having done the work in the UK and done classes mm-hmm. here, do you understand why schools do that? Or do you think it's just a ridiculous kind of standard they have set? Uh, this walks, I think, a very delicate line <laughs> because um, I, I think they're under. I mean, and obviously, of course, I mean, I want to preface and say it's very hard for me to speculate as to their underlying reasons. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if a lot of it is logistical limitations where, you know, we know that your classes from the UK are almost certainly fine. But if we accept classes from the UK, we'll now be in this like we'll now be in this position where we have to, you know, what select two dozen countries in the world that we think are equivalent and invite accusations of discrimination and also then have to teach or, you know, train our admissions officers into interpreting the, (laughs) you know, different and varying grading structures of all of these countries. Yeah. Um, it's you know I, I I understand the you know for to what increase their proportion of apply, of applying students by five or ten percent yeah they they have I think plenty I, I do, of applicants I do as it is yeah on the other hand um, I do hope that the policies change over the next few years um, what a couple of U.S. medical schools do it's very uncommon NYU is one of them. So I want to shout them out because I think they have a particularly forward-looking policy. NYU's they awesome. say we don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and of course, of course, the the dean of admissions is has been on the podcast um, several times. And uh, yeah, and um, and what they do is they you know they've partnered with an external credential evaluating service, which which effectively does the work of looking at the foreign transcripts and saying this is or is not equivalent to a U.S. degree. And I really like that approach because I think it is if only symbolically, a commitment to their, what should be, I hope, most medical schools underlying ideal, which is to accept bright, promising future physicians, kind of whatever their background may be. You know, why just because, you know, I was born, you know, because I was born in Afghanistan or I was born in Cyprus, should I be denied the opportunity to even apply to a promising medical school in the US. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, Alex, I'm excited to have you for the next several weeks here on the MCAT podcast and pick your brain as we go through these passages and discrete sets and all this fun stuff as we continue on with our breakdown of full length one from Blueprint to MCAT. So I'm excited to have you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on your journey to medical school. And I'll see you in the next episode. Yeah. See you then. All right. So there you have it again. That was Alex talking all about kind of his theories on the MCAT and his vision. This is one of the ways, one of the reasons I like this kind of new format of meeting a new 
MCAT live online instructor from Blueprint. Every few weeks, we get a little bit of a different view, a little bit of a different take on the MCAT and get to hear these personal stories to help personalize not only the MCAT, but also the Blueprint live online course. If you haven't checked that out yet, go over to blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. Check out all the amazing features of this new live online course. You can go schedule 40 hours of lectures, and if you need to reschedule them, you can as many times as you want. If you want to retake a class, you can do that as well. And these classes aren't teaching you the content. These classes are helping you integrate the content that you're learning into the MCAT. Go check it out, blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT Podcast. This is MedEd Media.